You're listening to Aid Evolve, and I'm your host, Rowena Liu. This is a podcast about the people trying to find a better way to do good. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with Sati Rajasekaran. Sati is the co-executive director of Jacaranda Health, based in Nairobi, Kenya. The story of Jacaranda fascinates me. I think because of the many ways in which this organization and its people have reinvented themselves over the past 10 years. Let me share with you my window into the constantly evolving identity of Jacaranda. Somewhere maybe 10 years ago, I was chatting with a friend of mine, Aliyah Walji. She and I have a lot in common. We went to the same university, we both studied engineering, and we were both working in global health. But she'd reached the point where she decided, you know, even if I get one particular innovation right, there's only so much that I can move an entire health system. What if I were to make a more direct impact? What if I were to run a clinic myself? You know, I'm not a doctor or anything, but I'm smart, I'm hardworking, I can do it right. Maybe that's how I can make a difference. And so she set up the first clinic for Jacaranda Health in Kenya. Fast forward to today's conversation with Jacaranda's CEO, Sati. Now, Sati joined Jacaranda at a key point where things were going well with the private clinic. They were doing things differently and it was working. And they couldn't resist the call to expand. You know, maybe this would work in the public sector. Maybe this could scale across all of Kenya. So Sati joined just when they were splitting the organization into one private clinic on one side and a new entity, a nonprofit, focused on scaling successful innovations in the public health sector. I guess the path to impact is never clear. It's full of twists and turns and circle backs. Here we go. Sadi, just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what you studied? So uh, I'm glad you didn't ask where I'm from because that's always the hard question to answer. But I uh, now I, I have to ask Sadi. Come on, <laughs> where are you from? <laughs> classic third culture kid. Uh, so I was, I'm Indian origin, but was born in Zambia, and then my huh. parents moved around a lot. So. Uh, lived in Zambia till I was 10, Oman, the UAE, moved to Canada. And so wow. what did your parents do? Uh, my, my dad was an engineer and it was, I think they just moved to, to make life hard for the kids. It's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm definitely going to be a parent like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a character building experience for you. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, you know, <laughs> look back with a lot of fondness because I think it, uh, it, it certain, certainly was the reason I moved back to the continent and also helps you relate to a lot of different people in a lot of different circumstances in life. When someone in your close inner circle asks you, what are you? Or where are you from? Do you have a clear answer to that? I will answer whatever makes them comfortable, really. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, no kidding, because people find it offensive if, if you know, it, depending on where you're from, if you say, "No, I'm, I'm Indian," or "I'm, I'm African," or you know, because they're like, "No, but where are you really from?" And I'm like, "Well, okay, I take a lot from wherever I've lived, so that, that's that's kind of the journey thing, you know." Yeah. No, I, I personally hate that question. But (laughs) (laughs) where are you really from? I mean, I just told you where I'm really from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So you're a child of the globe, is what I understand. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Sati ended up spending 14 years in Canada. He got a PhD in neuroscience. But after that ended up not being so taken by the business of science. One day, 
at a wedding. He made a connection to the Clinton Health Access Initiative, the organization that ended up sending him to Swaziland to work on access to medicines. Sati learned a ton, being able to work within that close-knit community, sitting in warehouses, seeing firsthand how we deliver treatment to people with HIV AIDS. He was still itching, though, for something that would go faster. He found that even when they came across a great idea, it would still take forever to get a grant, get some funding, and actually spend time building out that idea. So he looked around, and he found a new, young, innovative organization called Jacaranda Health. At the time, Jacaranda was running a set of private clinics in Nairobi and integrating their innovations into their own facilities to provide best-in-class but affordable maternity services. But everything was about to change, both for Sati and for Jacaranda. One thing led to another, and before long, Sati and his family were packing their bags and moving to Kenya so that he could join Jacaranda as their chief innovation officer in 2017. I asked him, what did you do exactly when you joined? <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. So, so there's a bit of backstory, Uh-oh. right? Um, and you have to understand the organization. So J- Jacaranda started off as a social enterprise. So the goal was how do you provide low cost or affordable care to moms, but make sure it's high quality, right? So mm-hmm. why can't any mother in Nairobi deliver her baby with the same sort of quality quality you would have in a big hospital? Why does it always have to be this fear, fearful experience where you're not sure what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And so the team set up maternity clinics. Eventually that turned into a hospital. It was really exciting. And in parallel, they realized there's a lot of work um, in terms of building solutions for our own hospital that could be relevant for other institutions. So it was this tiny M&E department that was working on appointment reminders, for example, and seeing if they work in the hospital setting or mm-hmm. uh, family planning messages that go out to moms after they've, they've delivered their baby. And then that team started to say, well, what if we took some of these approaches that we have and share it with the nearby public facilities so that they can benefit? And that work was the genesis of kind of a shift um, in thinking for the organization. So, you know, Jock Round is a nonprofit. It's mission-driven. The goal is for all moms and babies and underscore all to experience childbirth safely and with dignity. dignity. But if you set up a private sector entity, there are limitations to that. You know, there's scale limitations. There are economic limitations, uh, et cetera. When did that strategic shift happen from running your own private clinic or hospital to focusing on the public system? Yeah, about, I would say about five or six years ago, this is, you know, Nick was, was thinking about this is the sort of the, the dichotomy between how do you set up a sustainable business versus that's, that's an impact oriented business versus how do you scale that impact effectively? And it was just a realization that those two pathways are very different for an organization. Um, so we actually yeah. split the organization to to be able to to achieve that. Wait, what? R- what? Go, oh, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the nonprofit entity, this is a little bit like governance structure wise, we spun off the maternity hospital and it's still 
a part owner in the hospital, which is expanding and just broke ground on a new hospital recently. But the continued oh. mission of the nonprofit is public sector improvement. So, and this is the work that I lead on the ground here. It's really focused on how do we improve care in government hospitals and government health systems. But we operate as sister organizations. Right. And does Nick run one organization and you run the other one? So Nick and I um, sort of tag team on running the nonprofit. And then we have a CEO, Sawan, who runs the maternity hospital. It's in, in effect a completely different organization. But of course, we always describe it as, you know, we have the same parent and Jokaranda maternity is still a place where we have strong ties, right? So for example, we'll check in every now and then on best practices. Some of our new recruits for our your nurse training program will will do a rotation at the maternity hospital because we believe it's gold standard. So they're they're really strong ties. We've hired staff from the maternities. Yeah, and it's a great to have that as an innovation hub, as it were. You know, maybe you want to try something out in this clinic that you own and control or your, your team, you know, has a lot of oversight on. And then when it works, you can bring it over to the to the nonprofit and the public sector mission. That's fascinating. That sounds like a big shift for an organization to split into and sort of have these two separate but parallel missions. And that was the environment that you stepped into as chief innovation officer. Yeah, I stepped in right as this was happening, right? So for the first year, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that must have been a little chaotic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of transition that's always, always challenging. You know, people were, were confused as to what's happening. And so, so, you know, my, you know, day one, I showed up at the hospital and then like got introduced to the M&E team, but also took a tour of the hospital. And the M&E team was just, you know, we were, I always call it a shed. It wasn't that bad, but we were all working out <laughs> of this little, little uh, damp room at the back of the hospital. And then the goal uh, What was, I'm going to remember from this conversation is that you worked out of a shed. It's, it's yeah. It's, That's the story I'm going to tell. It's very interesting, right? Like to show up with this fancy title and be like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I actually love, love that experience because, you know, it was the eight of us saying, here's a wild ambition. Let's transform quality of care in, in public hospitals across the country. Nice. And That's then a great size. Yeah. And then just working with the team and saying, okay, here's what you have. Here's what the work has been to date. What works, what doesn't work. And how do we, how do we take a step at a time to go beyond that? Fascinating. I mean, that's, I didn't realize that it was such a period of change when you joined uh, and that you're working with a team of eight, like it must've, you guys have must've moved very quickly and made a lot of key decisions, uh, you know, in that, in that year that you joined or in the years after the year after that, um, that has shaped where the organization is now. Yeah. I think, I think the hardest ones were picking, you know, placing bets on which of these tools, which of the solutions we should in, I mean, I say invest in, but spend time on, right? And then the the parallel thing is, well, which ones do you stop spending time on? Which is painful, right? Because people have just spent yeah. years working on a project and you're saying, well, we're not going to do this anymore. So, and then, and then feeling confident that you made the right choice in, in some of those uh, aspects. Yeah. How did you make that decision? That sounds hard. Yeah. So I think we use this rubric, which is, what is the potential impact of this solution, right? Is it, is it, um, and this isn't like what, what's happening right now today, but what could this have an impact on? So, you know, uh, is it marginal or is it, could it, could it have a huge potential? And then you also want to look at the scalability, which is a broad term, but 
what's the unit cost, right? Like how much does it cost to, to deploy this? What is the operational overhead? How much staff do you need to, to run this program? And then very importantly, can this fit in a government context? And so this is, this is whenever we start something new, we're actually looking at these things very carefully to see, is this, does this have legs, right? Like is someone picking this up, using their own budget for it, staff time at the government hospital? And can this, like, if you have, if you add a hundred more hospitals to this, what is, what do those structures look like? So when you came in as chief innovation officer, you were stuck with this tricky task of deciding, okay, what are we going to carry forward in the nonprofit? What are we going to try to scale in this country? What do we leave behind inside the private hospital that's being run separately and in parallel? How has that since played out over the past couple of years as your work with Dr. Ronda Health has evolved? Do you feel like you've figured it out at this point? Like, you know, these are the interventions which characterize Dr. Ronda Health, or are you still debating and figuring out that change lever? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question because it's, it's super timely. So actually two years ago, we, we were very focused, right? We were focused on get moms to care at the right time in the right place, use a digital health platform to do that, and then make sure that when that mom meets a provider, she's, that provider has the skills to save her life. And so we used what we call a mentorship program to do that. And those two core solutions or core programs, if, as we call them, are essentially running across hundreds of hospitals and serving hundreds and thousands of women, moms and babies right now. Yeah, so we're, we're, yeah, we're in 15 counties in Kenya. We're, this prompts our digital health platform is running across 720 facilities and our mentorship program is in 300 of those facilities. So I think we've, we've part one, <laughs> to your answer is we we focused really well and now we're going through this sort of the how do you structure standardize you know improve operational efficiency of those solutions and then focus on handover complete handover of the solutions to the government as as appropriate but it's interesting that as those solutions have grown we of course have started to recognize where there there's sort of weak spots, right? So for example, a mom may text in on our platform on prompts and say, I'm bleeding. Our help desk agent will get in touch with her, call her and say, okay, here's, you need to go to the hospital. And then the mom will say, well, I just, I don't have money. I can't go to the hospital. And so we've been looking at partnering with organizations to think about emergency transportation, but in a sustainable way. And so one of the organizations we're working with is Rescue, which is like Uber for ambulances here in Kenya, which is really exciting. So the point being that I think we're getting into a space now where we're actually incubating the next generation of solutions, but in response to these these pain points that have come through as we've scaled, essentially. Right. That's interesting. So you're talking about both changing and shaping the organization to be one that can handle the scale that you're, that you're seeing that's, that's right on the horizon. But at the same time, maintaining, I don't know if I can call it an, like a research and development pipeline, uh, but you know, at least keeping the space to innovate, uh, to keep your eyes out for, for the next, uh, next innovation that you're going to scale. How does that play out in terms of how you've structured the team now or in terms of how you're, you're working day to day? How do you balance uh, the, the part of the organization that's working on the scale 
problem versus the ones that are working on innovating. Yeah, so I'm going to listen to this podcast in two years and see if if anything I say now works out in the future. <laughs> so it is a very active question, but you know, the way we're thinking about it is you need, we have an R&D team in the organization. Um, mm-hmm. And that R&D team has, you know, the more formative skills, right? Do you need to do qualitative assessments of something? Do you need to do a quantitative assessment? Great. But we've also recognized that you can't just silo those kind of questions, that kind of innovation within a team. So we actually doing our best to try and cross-pollinate ideas. So if, if for example, huh. our prompts team member comes up with something and says, yeah, here's a good example. Should we be using IVR for moms who have low literacy levels? Right, that's voice messages for the ones that can't text. Voice messages, yeah, exactly. Then our teams will get together say, well, how do we test this? You know, what's our, what's our hypothesis here? And like, what defines success? And, and it's kind of exciting to see that happen when, when they sit down together and brainstorm and then come up with a plan. I think we have a long way to go to set up those structures as we're growing. I think we have a, a long way to go in terms of really embedding that culture, but it's, it is, it is there. The seeds are there. That's kind of how we work at Jokaranda, but Turning those that that into organizational structure is something that's a very live question. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I imagine there's things that you can do as a small, agile nonprofit like Jacaranda, where you can have these these scrum teams or these you know innovation uh, ad hoc gatherings, where you you will have the perspective from a variety of different actors that will make your innovation better. And if you were a large large multinational nonprofit, it might be hard to do the same because, you know, you just can't get, you can't just get, you only fit so many people into a room, even if it's a Zoom meeting. <laughs> and so there's something about holding on to your roots as a, as a agile, uh, smaller organization, while also grappling with the challenge of scale and what that does for your team. Yeah. And I think, I think this is why one of the things that keeps me up is, can we see that now before we become too big? Because I think what I've seen is more challenging in the other organizations is this sort of top-down innovation where it's like, oh, they, these are the things we should focus on or innovation committees, which I, I just don't, you know, I don't know how those kind of structures can work versus, you know, it just being part and parcel of what an organization does. If you're in the field, you know, enrolling mothers onto prompts, maybe you see something and you bring it up with your team member and then you guys, you know, sit down and hack together a solution and see what happens. And we see a lot of that at Jogaran. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that maybe it's been baked in, but we've got to keep working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's something where, I'm, I'm just brainstorming here, but I wonder if there's something where you could gather those cross, those actors from across teams and just have like a, like a half day, you know, innovation day uh, where they work together to sort of iron out how something could be different. Uh, and then they pitch and then you pick the one to carry forward. I think something like that would be quite fun. Yeah, I, I love that. This sort of, you know, mini hackathon idea. Yeah, yeah. Really <laughs> you can tell where my roots come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Today, Jacaranda enjoys a certain degree of success. Its two private clinics in Nairobi are recognized as best in class in terms of providing affordable quality care. And I'm not sure of the exact number, but I think they have about 100 employees. But what's even more impressive is that they've picked out the interventions that have worked the best for them in the private clinic and they're scaling them across 71 government hospitals in five counties in Kenya. 
the private clinic provides them the independence and the agility to be a testbed for a whole basket of digital innovations. And then the nonprofit is taking the best of these innovations to scale in Kenya. Here's an example of one of their innovations, just to give you a taste. It's called Prompts. It's an integrated digital health solution that helps mothers to get access to facility care through a combination of messages delivered directly to mother's phones, a help desk to answer questions, and artificial intelligence to decipher, analyze, and prioritize thousands of messages a day. I asked Sati, what's that been like? Scaling this intervention across government and hospitals, what are the kinds of things that an organization like Jacaranda is really good at doing? And what are some of the scale issues that a team of this size struggles with? There's always this assumption that, you know, you, you set something up and then someone, you know, frequently a donor will say, well, is it replicable? And then, of course, you say, yeah, it's <laughs> replicable. Yeah, for sure. But, but the minute you, you go to a new geographic context, you have to adapt and pivot and adjust, right? And so the true test is, does your solution at its core stand up to some of these adjustments you need to make, right? And that's been, you know, so for example, someone at the county will say, well, you know, we need, we need information this way. Can you adjust it this way? And we're like, okay, cool, we can do that. We can switch our, our dashboards around. That's no problem. Uh, or they may want specific nutritional support messages. And we got to build that in because that's the demand from the government and it makes sense. So that's building in that flexibility as we're growing, I think has been really important. I think the other one is thinking about, well, what are the pieces that we need in place for a national level solution, right? Like, so this is when you start working with policymakers and trying to understand whether there is a policy change required and what are what are the the national level data protection needs that you need to be thinking about and and then of course all the technological constraints like server locations and things like that that start popping up once you get to a certain size yeah although for an organization like yours which has very strong connections with Kenya and is trying to scale in Kenya i would think some of those challenges are a bit more straightforward right like in terms of uh, local hosting, local infrastructure, uh, understanding what the local context and, and policy is around data protection. Have you found that to be true, that you're able to navigate that with more nuance than some of the international organizations? Well, I think, you know, we maintain strong connections. So there's a, a level of trust, which is important, right? So you're not just flying in and flying out. There's there's a clear understanding from your government counterpart that you're here, you're a Kenyan organization and you've been doing this work for a while. I think where it becomes challenging is we don't have the firepower to set up multiple technical working groups or sponsor workshops to mm -hmm. address a very specific issue around a policy, for example, under data protection. And that's, that's you know, this is where you you, you start getting into this ugly competitive space with other other much larger organizations where you're st <laughs> we still consider ourselves little hustlers so it's mm -hmm. it, it becomes hard i love and, hustlers yeah <laughs> yeah so, so hold on to that <laughs> <laughs> so i think this is this is the kind of space we're working in right now and just trying to figure out well is there a policy gap for example uh, and i think you know on data protection and and implementation of a data protection policy there are gaps, and we're trying to navigate that just like everyone else. In the next bit, Sati talks about GDPR, the law governing data protection in Europe. In 2019, Kenya passed its own Data Protection Act, 
which was largely modeled off GDPR. GDPR is rigorous, and it enshrines the right of the individual to have ownership of their own data. But how does that work exactly? And how does that collide with the needs of government? Many countries have just sort of adopted the GPDR policies as part of their Data Protection Act, which is great, right? So that is protecting the information of the end beneficiary or the user of a platform or whoever's data is being collected. What I see a lot and where there's a lot of confusion is what's the role of a ministry in, in that? So is the ministry the owner of the data? And I think there's an assumption that has been for years that the ministry is the owner of all health information. And actually that contravenes a data protection policy, right? Because technically the, the owner of the information is the client, the end user whose information is being collected. And I don't yeah. think we've seen that consenting process or that, you know, the education process for the clients to say, this is your health information. If by any chance someone shares your health record with someone else, that should have been covered by a health po- by by a consent process. And I have not seen this embedded within ministry structures. It frequently gets applied to partners, but not with ministry structures. So we actually end up in a situation where sometimes we're telling our county counterparts, we have no choice. We can't share this information with you. It belongs to the user as per a policy. And they will say, no, that's our data. And so there's, you know, you have to sit down and chat with them and, and walk them through and say, well, what information do you need? If it's not sharing PII, we can aggregate it, et cetera. Yeah, that's personally identifying data. Exactly. We're not trying to be antagonistic, but it just it just shows that policies have been set up, but that that sort of implementation ecosystem isn't quite there yet. Yeah. And I actually haven't heard of that particular tension I mean, so I think it's, I, I love that you're highlighting that tension because I can see that arising and I haven't heard it discussed as much as one would expect. You're talking about an individual is providing their health data to one of your clinics, uh, you know, like let's say the private sector clinic, for example, and then they've, they've given up their health data. The government wants it. I think in a lot of our digital health policy dialogues, they're like, okay, the government should, we should always give our, our data back to the government. But what you're saying is that that data belongs to the individual. And maybe the individual, you know, wants to share it at a certain level. Maybe they don't, but it's, it's their data and they should have that choice and that agency of where it goes, right? That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I just don't see any way, any other way around that. Um, you, know, you know, let's fast forward 10 years and wearables and whatever, so much information being collected. It should be the person who controls what's happening with that information, not any other entity, not Jacaranda, not the government, uh, not anyone else. So I asked Sati, okay, that sounds good in theory, but how does it work in practice? Let's say we're talking about a, a woman in rural Kenya who's semi-literate and maybe has never used a computer before. How do we make data ownership real for her? You know, something I find fr- quite frustrating is the assumption that it has to be zero to one, right? Like, so, so now you want us to to tell every user that, you know, these are the privacy considerations versus just thinking about, okay, let's, let's take a five-year time frame. What do we need to put in place in terms of general public education on privacy rights so that we can get there, right? So it's not today, but it's at some point. Because without that, it's a super slippery slope, right? Because the assumption is, no, no, the individual doesn't have the capacity to understand what we're doing with them. And 
That is thinking that has influenced many disastrous public health campaigns in the past, right? So ethically, I, you know, it's just, I feel like there's, there's no way around. And from a practical Mm. implementation perspective, of course, you know, it's not going to be easy, but at least let's put it up there as an objective. And I think that's what I'm missing. I'm not hearing people talk about it as a key objective in, in their big sort of global dialogues and things like that. Agreed. I think that's a really important point. And when we convey this message, it doesn't have to be, you know, like a 10 page written document. It can be something very simple. Like, who do you want to have this information? Are you comfortable with, you know, this person seeing it? It also prevents us from making decisions on behalf of the people that we're trying to serve and assuming that we know better for them than they do. Yeah, absolutely. Sati, is there anything else you'd like to add before we switch over to the rapid fire questions? No, I, I just, that it's, I mean, these are hard questions, right? As, as you grow as an organization, but I, I think they're really important questions and this is what happens as you scale. And it's not just, I guess the, the only, the point is this is part of the innovation process, right? This is, it's not like you have mm-hmm. product and it's done. It's all this stuff that becomes harder. It's just, how do you integrate? How do you think about those, those sticky policy questions uh, as you're growing? So for me, it's all part of the same sequence of events. So I guess I guess that's my point is this this should be considered part of that process. Absolutely. Thank you, Sati. A few last questions to wrap up our show. First question for you, Sati, is if you have any advice for young professionals, people just starting out and thinking that they maybe they'll use technology or other kinds of innovation to do some good in the world. Yeah, I feel like this is basic maybe, but it doesn't hurt to repeat it. It's just get out there and get on the ground and go try and solve a challenge that actually exists versus trying to deploy a solution that may solve a challenge. (laughs) So, you know, challenge first, then, then solve. Yeah. Spoken like someone that's seen the the problems, seen solutions applied to challenges that don't (laughs) exist. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Is there a common implementation mistake that you see other new people starting out in this field often making? Yeah, it's this tricky balance between thinking about the scalability of a solution too early versus just exploring the space. You know, at an early stage, you just want to try stuff, see if it works and not constrain it too much. And then you can think about scalability. But I think the timing of those questions is really important. And that's something that I see mistakes on both sides. So on, on one side, I, heard, I was in a meeting yesterday where someone said, do we know this is going to work? And my answer is like, no, we don't. We have to test it out. Uh, <laughs> and then I've seen solutions that have been languishing in research world for a long time without the question of scalability coming up. So I think the timing of that is a, is a frequent mistake. Yeah, yeah, for sure. These days, there's so much language around you got to build from scale. You have to build for scale from the beginning. And that's ridiculous because if you, from a technology perspective, if you're building a software platform for scale, then, you know, the first month you're going to put a million dollars into it and maybe you didn't build the right thing. You know, like it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, at least from the software side to make that kind of investment before you know that you have the right tool. That's yeah. my little soapbox. Yeah, I wonder what, <laughs> yeah, no, completely agree. I just wonder what the right question to ask there is. And, and, you know, this is a much longer conversation, but maybe it's not build build for eventual scale or tell us how this could be scaled maybe uh, is a better Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot more sense to me. Would you like to offer a kudos or a shout out to another mover or shaker in this field? 
Yeah. So we work with so many great organizations, but I think we have benefited significantly from capacity building through various organizations and shout out to RippleWorks, which is you really helped us on the technology side, on the user design side, just by pairing us with talent in Silicon Valley. Just when I think mm. of like people we've worked with who've really changed the trajectory of the organization, uh, we have been paired with them by RippleWorks and we're doing a project again with them. So I just, I really love what they do and, and how, how they support our organization. Nice. Just for fun then, can you recommend a book, a blog or a podcast that you enjoy in your personal time? Yeah, I will recommend three things uh, for fun. Um, so, so book, The Martian by Andy Weir, you know, super easy read. Yes. But since we've been talking about innovation, I think that just totally describes the process of try and fail. It's such a fun book. And it's on Mars. And it's on Mars. Yeah, exactly. And then if you, if you're really stuck, uh, you know, which I've found as an organizational leader or just trying to figure things out, I would recommend the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. It's just sort of a a nice, someone else is going through this. Don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) And then podcast uh, reasons to be cheerful by Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd is a great podcast has a little bit of development context, but with climate news being so awful, it's just been a, a nice, refreshing change to hear about positive things that are going on and solutions that could be applied globally. So I would uh, recommend that one. Great list. For me personally, I'm not a therapy person generally, but the Hard Things About Hard Things book has really kind of lifted me up in the, when I've been at the pit of my professional career. Um, it is it is a great read just to understand how much worse it can get <laughs> yeah, for somebody totally. else. <laughs> I go back to it all the time. I'm like, I'm going to read this part again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh man, Sethi, it was a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for opening up and telling us about your story. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to catch a synthesis of this or any of our other interviews, subscribe to our newsletter on the website at aidevolved.com. That's it for now. Stay safe, everyone.